This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Magna. And I'm Luc Olivier Dumoblet. And our topic this week is... Our sixth annual WWDC Extravaganza. Oh, shit. Uh, but first, we have some follow-up. Uh, and I guess I'll start off with the administrative note, which we have apparently been screwing up for the last two episodes. So this... That's true. <laughs> yeah. So as we've been doing for the past few years, we're going to be going on a brief summer hiatus after the release of episode 188 on July 17th, because on all previous episodes, I said 187, which is today's episode, which is not the last one. <laughs> In your defense, though, in your defense, the dates were right. The the episode numbers were off by one error. So yeah, I guess it's a typical... classic programmer. Mistake. Yes, uh, we're going to return, of course, with episode one hundred eighty nine on September eleventh. Uh, so quite a long break, but yeah, we we need it. Uh, I also have some follow up for episode eighty nine, which was called the Justin Bieber problem about Twitter alternatives. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! <laughs> this title. <laughs> Uh, a new Twitter alternative kind of uh, manifested itself this week. Uh, so Cohost was released by the Anti-Software Software Club, which is a software company uh, by a bunch of smart people. Uh, and it's kind of kind of a mix between app.net and Tumblr. So it is a service that you can join for free. Uh, you can only post if you get an invite from a friend. I got lucky and a friend of mine actually sent me an invite. You can support them with a paid membership, which I believe is uh, $5 a month. Uh, or there's a cheaper deal if you uh, get it for the whole year. And yeah, it's a lot more like Tumblr than it is like Twitter. Uh, you can put arbitrary HTML in your posts, which leads to some very creative outbursts sometimes, and sometimes it leads to complete disaster. Uh, they've been uh, removing access to certain CSS features this week because, of course, everything on the internet is abusable. Um, so Oopsie. It, it does introduce an element of chaos into your social networking, and you are either really, really into that or really, really not into that. Uh, I tend to think that I'm on the side that does not appreciate that. I think there's a lot of complexity uh, inherent in having a service that is trying to be more like Tumblr than it is trying to be like Twitter that makes it more of a pain in the ass to follow along with uh, in your day-to-day. -day. Like Twitter, you can do it mindlessly pretty much anywhere without thinking too hard. Each tweet takes about a fixed amount of time to get through. You know what you're getting when you open your timeline, whereas if you're opening up something where people can make giant text posts and html showcases and other stuff it's just a lot and it can be very chaotic and i don't i don't think it's for me but i just wanted to mention it because people have been talking about it this week so go check that out i'm still surprised after all these years how you always find a way to get invites to most of the invites invite only software that has been released in the lab past 15 years i think that's pretty common since i known you you always have somebody that give you access to that i mean it's not hard if you talk to programmers <laughs> we we know how to get I, the hookup i guess uh, but i guess you you've entered in more relationship that allows you to have that than i do i i guess but yeah uh so i don't have any invites so don't ask me uh but uh <laughs> i do have a short list of people that i do know are looking for invites that i will be contacting if i ever do get any uh so yeah uh you have some follow-up of your own 
Yeah, uh, it's pretty pretty simple. Uh, if you feel if you sound if you feel that my voice is a bit weird this week, it is true. I do sound uh, nasally, uh, and I guess it is sad follow up to. I didn't look at the number, uh, the episode number, but it's sad follow up to our episode when we talk about the quote unquote post pandemic shit. Uh, sadly, uh, last week I caught COVID, so. Uh, no worries though. My symptoms are pretty mild as we speak. As you hear right now, I mainly sound uh, nasally. So I'm more or less at day four at the time of recording of just having uh, symptoms out. So finger crossed it continues to stay mild and goes away. Uh, like, I don't want to say like a normal cold, but like a cold. Let's put it this way. I'm pretty happy after four days that my symptoms are pretty mild. So I wish myself that it stays the same again. But yes, excuse my voice for this <laughs> week's episode. And I guess to go back to Yannick's point about us doing our typical summer hiatus, I think this summer hiatus will be even more welcome uh, this <laughs> year uh, than in previous year because of that. But I guess a small parenthesis related to that, I did record some uh, voiceover for some product demos today at work, and uh, I sounded fine after three or four minutes, so I guess I can do an hour podcast now. Uh, but but yeah, so if I slowly but surely disappear or lose my voice, you might know why, but I hope that doesn't happen. Which brings us to the end of the follow-up section and to our main topic, and... Kind of going back to our previous, uh, our previous WWDC extravaganza. So if you missed our last five annual episodes of WWDC extravaganza, let me summarize what we usually do. So Yannick and I would identify sessions that we find interesting, but that might not be at the top of your mind if you're an iOS developer following the Apple WWDC. So, um, and it is also not something super deep and things like that. If you're, I think, an Apple nerd, I will summarize it this way. And that throughout the years, you realize that Yannick and I uh, are Apple nerds in different levels. You realize that the session we usually choose are also uh, relevant to some of our other interests. Spoiler alert. But the idea is we want to expose sessions that you might not just by looking at the description or by even just looking at the title bookmark click play on it but in the end those sessions are pretty interesting on their own so Yannick and I will summarize two session each uh, and I guess give our perspective about the technology, or at least I will on my two session, give a perspective on the new changes in the technology, discuss during those sessions. In previous uh, annual extravaganza episode for WWDC, I would tend to go through details about WWDC, especially in the recent years, because because of the pandemic, the conference has changed a lot. But in 2022, and if you listen to our previous episode, which was episode 164, if I recall correctly, um, where we discuss all the things that Apple did new last year as a really fully remote conference, not a, oh my God, we need to make a remote conference alive in like eight weeks. Uh, it was really well run again. A lot of the, like a lot, all the presentations are released at 11 a.m. Eastern time. The, Every day, so you have a schedule of okay. You go look at the schedule, and let's say there's maybe 50, 60 sessions 
no, maybe, maybe 40, 50 sessions getting released on Tuesday at 11, on Wednesday at 11, on Thursday at 11, and at Friday at 11. So you can start bookmark the one you want to watch uh with since the introduction of the recorded format those sessions are more concise they're shorter they're rarely exceeding over 30 minutes 35 minutes i i don't have the exact number but just scrolling to the apple developer app i don't think i've seen any session over 30 the 30 tens minutes, like, so 34, 35, 36 minutes at most. Uh, whereas in the past two years, there might have been session that one or two that might have gone to 40 minutes, but those are where rare exceptions. So the days of an hour session, uh, an hour, 10 minutes, or even like 50 minute sessions are long gone. And I think again, I'll repeat what I said last year. I think to me, this is a refreshing change and it is making the session straight to the point which is a a bit of a downside for our episode because there's a lot of information to take note of and to include in our summaries of the sessions so it meant just to uh, pull you behind the curtain a bit it meant that uh, I think I watched two sessions that were if you were just press play and just watch and listen uh, they were about 20 minutes each I think for the first one I spent maybe an hour writing notes like stopping doing a bit of research while they not only while the presenters were talking but oh yeah they, they said something interesting let me look because I also read the Xcode release notes and, and things like that because I was linking a couple of topics mentioned throughout those sessions. And again, we're like, this episode's going to be released in early July. So it's been a couple of weeks since WWDC. So it means that not the information in those sessions is out of date, but a lot of the information that was provided in those sessions, they now have more documentation on the website because Apple had the time to release such documentation when compared to when this video was recorded maybe a couple of weeks before uh, WWDC. I will add, though, that I feel... I, I think I expressed this last year, too, though, is that I think the shorter format, at least for me, is not ideal i i miss the old longer uh, sessions just because they could actually fit more like th- there's a certain pace to the uh to the let's say the 20 minute sessions that is still pretty slow so they're not that dense honestly they cover very surface level things a lot of the time and i often come out of them disappointed whereas i had less of that when i had hour long sessions in the old format hmm. I I recall you had this perspective last year, and uh, I guess we'll be repeating ourselves a bit. To me, and I will slowly but surely move into my first session because again, I don't want to repeat a lot of what we said. Uh, and the the yeah. So wait a sec. So yes, uh, a good example is my first session. I felt that there was a lot of content, and not only that it was not too dense, but it was a good eye-opener for me going through the documentation and guess what i spent the time to go through the documentation uh in preparation for this episode for the first session i want to talk about and guess what it is a good improvement it seems that this year they've listened hard to a lot of the feedback the developer community gave them for the past few years and they are slowly but surely releasing better and better documentation especially for the new framework so that is improving and to me those shorter sessions are a good I don't want to say teaser because I think they are they contain more content than just a teaser, but mm-hmm. they're a good 
way to introduce yourself to certain topics. And I'm eager to see that because I know some of your sessions are more specific into a topic. Yeah. Uh, so I'm surprised that still in that specific topic, that specific niche, you feel that they're still eye level. Just that perspective, though, like I'm also the person who listened to a three hour, 45 minute podcast about monetization schemes and a mobile game I'm not even playing. So I, I like long stuff. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I'm not surprised about that. But yeah, uh, on again, quick summary, there was still the the Swift challenges online. There was still the Slack room for called the digital launches. Uh, Lounges, excuse me. One thing that is a nice feedback and a nice improvement from last year is the Slack chat, the Slack workspace is still live. I think to this day, I think I, I looked at it even today on my work computer. And that is a nice change from last year because let me tell you those Slack rooms, I, I like, I don't understand how people are watching videos are at finding the time to download Xcode, play with Xcode, and then have the time to go ask questions in that chat room because the questions sometimes that are asked are like so well thought out and be like, this shows that the person at the time to understand the new functionality, try to implement it in their app, and then go ask a question in like two or three hours. Like people like surprise me so much. So I'm so happy that this content is available because now I can take the rest of the summer to digest it, to spend the time watching the answer, not, not watching, but reading the answers that Apple has provided to certain of the questions. Because guess what? Even throughout the week when I was scrolling to them, some of the questions like, oh yeah, I watched a session and I had that question. I'm happy somebody asked a question. And then there was a thread that was pretty interesting with some Apple engineers. So great improvement from last year. Uh, that, that, and last but not least, I think the big change for this year is the reintroduction of uh, in-person, uh, events. Let's put it this way. I think if you want to know more about that, I'd strongly invite you to just Google it because you'll find a shit ton of YouTube videos about it, a shit ton of podcasts about it, because a lot of podcasts of YouTubers and people in the Apple development community decided to go and Yannick and I were not people that decided to go this year uh, for obvious reasons so I don't have a perspective on that I think it is interesting to see how they are possibly bringing an in-person aspect to possibly a conference that is gonna stay online quote-unquote forever so I'm eager to see if what we saw this year for the in-person events for us specific uh, like a specific 0.001% of the community if that will stick or if will it evolve next year hopefully uh, when the pandemics quote unquote really ends quote unquote if I make reference from one of our past episodes good luck with that <laughs> yeah I, I was utterly sarcastic I with know. that statement <laughs> Utterly sarcastic. Uh, any other things, any other points you want to mention about the conference itself, Nick, before we jump into our main sessions? Uh, not really, no. Maybe okay. something will come to mind during my talking and I'll jam it in at the end. But for now, no. Sounds good. So I'll open the ball by talking about session 10,002, Create macOS or Linux Virtual Machines.
And this session was interesting because it is not a new and this all of this virtual machine work is not based on something real new. So that it, all of the presentation was based on a quote unquote new-ish framework called the virtualization framework. And that framework was introduced in uh macOS 12 Monterey, which is funny because uh, during the presentation, the in the presenter says it was introduced in Big Sur, and then you go look at the docs, and it says Monterey. So I don't know why I I tried it uh, in the past year because my computer was on Monterey, and I want to go back to that once I'm done with my summary of the session. But they mentioned uh, Big Sur, and I was like, I wasn't sure if it was a typo because it a it's a recording, or b if it's just the presenter mixing the names because who knows what names goes with which <laughs> version numbers anymore since they move away from cats. Yes, very uh, relatable. But yeah, so uh, the visualization framework is a high level framework allowing you to manage and configure virtual machine that can run macOS on Apple Silicon hardware or Linux virtual machine running Apple Silicon or Intel. Um, so it's really high level. And what do we mean by that? Because there's already the hypervisor framework that you could use today to write your virtual machines of the virtualization software. And the virtualization network is really uh, higher above because it offers abstraction to the developer and does a lot of the job for you, which I think is what makes it quite nice. So to create a virtual machine using this framework, and let's, let's not forget that in the description of uh, that session, a lot of it is we will be talking about how to use the framework and write code for it. So to create a virtual machine in that framework, your app needs to provide the two types of object using that framework. The first one is called a configuration object, and the second one is called a virtual machine object. So let's start with a configuration object. And it this object defines the hardware properties you want to virtualize. So the presenter compared the configuration object literally by showing a screenshot of the Apple Store like configuration page. They they compared the configuration object of how you would configure a Mac when you order it from the Apple Store. The configuration is represented by an object called VZ Virtual Machine Configuration, and it has a set of properties. Couple of examples. CPU count, memory size, the definition for all the storage devices, the definition for all the pointer devices, the the definition for all the graphics devices, etc., that you want to have uh, your virtual machine have access to and that you want to more or less virtualize. So once you have that uh, created in your code base, you can now look at the other part, which is the virtual machine object. And it is represented by a VZ virtual machine object. And this is pretty simple because it contains the operations to operate the virtual machine. Start, stop, reboot, and things like that. So coming back to the configuration object, I mentioned that there are a lot of hardware attributes that you need to virtualize. So let's take, for example, you need to virtualize um, 
how to configure your uh, storage device. So you would define a, tip, a couple of objects to define where is your fake SSD store and things like that. Same thing for the pointer device, which we'll come back to uh, later because there's a new feature for uh, pointing devices on macOS 13 Ventura. Uh, a niceties, one thing that meant, like I think the best way to describe why virtualization framework is more high-level than previous frameworks offered by Apple, it also offers a NSU-based view to output the output of the graphic interfaces of your virtual machine wow. inside of you. So you can instantiate a VZ virtual machine view. And if you assign it a VZ ma- virtual machine object, this does the link for you, meaning that when you start it, it will take all the graphic output and put it in that NS view so it can be added to any AppKit-based app. It reminds me of uh, when you were booting up the classic environment and old versions of OS X, you had like this window that had the boot screen from OS 9 in the window. <laughs> it's You know what? This is exactly what it does when you boot. <laughs> you see, like when you start the virtual machine, you see the Apple logo with the boot sequence and the boot screen. I, you know what? In my limited experience with it, I never tried if you can like trigger verbose mode and things like that. Now I'm curious to know if, to see if we can do that because that would be pretty funny. Verbose mode is like, it's gotten complicated with all of the, uh, T2 and yeah, other stuff. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised in Apple Silicon and things like that. Hmm. But uh, something to try at some point. On top of providing a literal NS view for you to uh, to show the graphics output of a virtual machine, the virtualization framework supports a lot of functionality you expect your OS and your hardware to support. A good example is the AFI bootloader, audio devices, Rosetta 2, which we'll talk later on, uh, NAT networking, sandboxing, and more. So you can really see that Apple provides a lot of tools for you to use part of that framework and then you can more or less build an application on top of that so i'm eager to see at this point of this presentation i was really good to see like which common virtualization software tool will move to that framework kind of assuming that it is already doing a lot of hard work for sure if you recall in the introduction the types of os you can virtualize are maybe more limited than tools like Parallels, VirtualBox, and things like that. But I wouldn't be surprised that the benefits of using Apple's framework for that outweighs some of those uh, downsides. I think the main catch there is that a lot of those pieces of software are cross-platform, and therefore they ultimately only really want a hypervisor to be able to make things as cross-platform as possible. So I don't think you're going to see very many of them. What I think is more realistic is you might see new ones pop up that actually do make use of this by maybe Mac indie developers. Yeah, because uh, I want to end that session later on about the code sample provided by Apple, which is literally a functioning (laughs) virtualization (laughs) app. Uh, It doesn't have a nice UI at all, but I don't think it takes that much work to get there. So now let's jump into the specificities of virtualing macOS. Because when you try to virtualize macOS using that framework, the configuration object has special macOS-only properties or specific variants of those properties that are macOS-specific. 
And the first one is called the platform definition, which is represented by a, an object called VZ Mac platform configuration. And this object is composed of three main things. The hardware model you're trying to virtualize, the auxiliary storage, and the machine identifier. And the machine identifier is pretty much like the serial number of the machine, but in a virtualized way. Each of those three components are represented by VZ Mac hardware model, VZ Mac auxiliary storage, and VZ machine identifier. And again, uh, you need to configure this object and then set it on the configuration of set dot platform property. And it's kind of funny because the auxiliary storage is kind of said, oh, you need to configure it and then pass it, but you don't really know what it's for. And we'll see later on because it seems to me more or less the uh, Mac specific representation of the memory used by the bootloader, even if there is a specific uh, bootloader property called the Mac OS uh, bootloader. And as a bootloader's as job is, is to load and boot your OS. Uh, it is represented by VZ Mac OS bootloader and it is needs to be set on the configuration bootloaders property. And this is only for booting Mac OS OSs. So at that point, you should have a proper VM configuration. You should have a proper virtual machine object. You should have a added to your configuration a couple of macOS specific properties. Now that you have a, a virtual machine that can host macOS, you need to install it inside the virtual machine. And for that, you need a restore image. And if you've been close enough to any of the Apple Silicon devices, that's when you start to realize, huh, okay, I understand now why this framework is Apple Silicon only because yeah. <laughs> if I say restore images again and again and again, you kind of start to realize, wait, isn't it, isn't it the way we call the OS on iOS a restore image? And yes, that's true. So to properly install macOS in the virtualization framework, you more or less need to pass it a restore image. And those images can be either downloaded from Apple's developer website or the virtualization, the virtualization framework offers API to download either a specific OS version supported by said framework or to download the latest supported OS. And this framework is called VZ macOS restored image. And let's say you want to do the latest, you can just take the static property that's called latest supported. And based on that Im restore image definition, you get a URL, you get specific properties, meaning that you can fetch a specific image, fetch the, the Apple call it the most featureful configuration, meaning that to run this OS, you need this exact configuration of virtualized hardware so that it runs best, meaning that you can skip configuring your VZ virtual machine configuration object before you get your image. You can get the image, get the property that it exposes, and then assign those best settings that you need to assign to your VM configuration so that the image you're downloading to run macOS is running at the best configuration it could in a virtual machine. Once you have downloaded the restore image, you can use VZ macOS installer 
and pass it the image you downloaded and call the install method on it. And guess what? The VM would boot with the beloved macOS install lure that you know and have used multiple times. But one thing you might have not realized is you might not have configured uh, your graphics displays and the Mac and the Mac hardware supports graphics acceleration and this capability can be exposed to the virtual machine so it can also be graphics accelerated via the graphics card. So it is important to not forget that on your configuration object that you set the graphics device and that you really set an in, like part of those graphics device that you expose in your configuration that you create an instance of VZ Mac graphics device configuration and define a display resolution and size uh, in it and then assign it to the graphics device property of your configuration. Also, I did mention I would come back on a new pointing devices. So in uh, macOS Bixer, or no, macOS Monterey, you would be able to only have a pointing device like a mouse. So up, down, left, right. But in macOS Ventura, you can now expose the Mac trackpad as a pointing device, meaning that your virtual machine can also support gestures. Um, so it, of course... Uh, this functionality requires that you both run your VM on a Mac running macOS Ventura and that the virtualized macOS is also at minimum macOS Ventura. The trackpad as a pointing device is represented by VZ Mac trackpad configuration and that is needs to be assigned to the configuration dot pointer devices property that I mentioned earlier. Last new thing uh, for macOS virtualization new in macOS Ventura is that now you can have shared directories between the OS Mac and the virtual machine. Uh, that is an issue I encountered with the version on Monterey. Uh, sharing data between the OS Mac and the virtual machine was pretty hard. Uh, and now they have introduced configuration objects that you can define so that you can easily and that every time the virtual machine boots, it will auto-mount said a shared directory uh, to make it way easier to uh, have a file system shared between those two and that the changes in both of them are replicated on the OS and the virtual machine. And that concludes the macOS part of that section. So it, in the end, it was kind of, pre, uh, it was there to remind you that this framework was around, that, for, that is, this framework is pretty easy to use. And throughout the session, the presenter was showing it, okay, like, yes, I name a lot of classes and a lot of objects, but after a couple of slides, they would go in the code and show us how to do that in their sample code. At that point, you they were able to demo us like macOS running and macOS running with the cursor and with shared directories between the OS Mac and that. They moved to Linux because Linux got a lot of improvement uh, this year with uh, macOS Ventura. Uh, the presenter mentioned that again, it's, that part was a bit weird to me because a lot of the new things that they offer this year makes, I think, Linux virtualization bearable. And they, <laughs> they were so proud to say, oh, we supported Linux virtualization since the inception of the virtualization framework, which I guess, yes, you could run Linux and it runs and then you can SSH into it and things like that. But, uh, but literally, uh, 
They've added support for the AFI bootloader, part of macOS Ventura, for example. They've added the opportunity to support graphics content out of Linux VMs in macOS Ventura. So before I go into those details, uh, the presenter showed that the configuration that we've been discussing for the past 10-15 minutes, those still applies to Linux. For sure, some of the properties now are Linux-specific, but the main difference is at that point, ignoring like the Mac trackpad and some of the graphics that are Mac-specific, the configuration stays more or less the same if you want to virtualize macOS or Linux. The main difference, though, is how you expose the installer to your virtual machine, because again, uh, you don't have IPSWs and restore images on Linux like you do on macOS. So it was funny because... The presenter mentioned ISO files, and it's been years since I've tackled any ISO files because <laughs> just life. Uh, it's been a while since I installed Linux anywhere else, uh, somewhere in general. So, but I they did show... it like four times in the last week. You should get on my level. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess. I, I guess that's the joy of being an Apple developer. I don't need to do that. Uh, but yeah, but in. In the end, they show how easily you can, more or less, you figure out how to download the ISO file yourself. That's that's for sure one downside of that. You don't get nice APIs like on the macOS Restore Images APIs where you can just tell the virtual server, please download this OS for me. Uh, or please show me the location of that OS for or me. Or like if you're using Docker, you literally just type like Fedora colon the version you want and you have an instance of fedora running in seconds it's like really right. not hard <laughs> no you don't get that but at least they showed they, they showed in, in the presentation how to create a virtual storage device based on this iso file and to do that you create a vz disk image storage device storage device attachment and yes those class names are mouthful so bear with me tonight for this we're nearly done on those and then from it, you can now create a VZ USB mass storage device configuration that can be attached as a storage device to your VM's configuration. So remember, like I mentioned the VM configuration object a lot. This is the central, the central place where you define the hardware you want to virtualize. It always goes back to this. Yes, one object that as out of branches to define all the peripherals, all the hardware you want to virtualize. So once you've done that, it is the same array where you might have set your, uh, like your virtualized SSD definition. So once you do that, then you could attach a new EFI bootloader that will do the, okay, I have an empty SSD. I have a USB mass storage device that is pointing to an ISO file. Oh, okay. I'll use that and then start the installer. And then once the install is done, then the EFI knows how to switch to the right partition or the right storage device and boot from it and ignore the installer from now on. So that is the other part to me is, okay, yes, you can you can ignore not having graphics. And for that, they've introduced VZ virtual graphics device configuration. And you specify scan outs to define your screen resolution to use a macOS term as a graphics device. But, to me, the weird part is that, oh yeah, we support, we support Linux. Okay. No graphics. Sure. For server development, you don't really care. But the way they're selling their EFI bootloader support in the virtualization framework means that it seems it was a L to install Linux virtual machines before. And I have limited experience with Linux virtual machine I'm using that framework. I'm not convinced that it was that much of a problem. <laughs> 
But yeah, that, that that's I wouldn't be surprised, but that's weird that they're making you feel that the FI bootloader implementation in virtual framework is like kind of the holy grail. But then three seconds before they said, oh yeah, we supported Linux virtual machines since the inception of this new framework. So I guess it's to expand what this framework is capable of and also grow its potential that they've done that. But, uh, I felt that there was a lot of mixed signals part of the Linux section of that, uh, of the, the presentation with a lot of the new APIs improved, introduced in macOS Ventura for Linux support. Last up, uh, again, new in Ventura, but pretty interesting for Linux. And I'm not, I'm a bit surprised. I, I guess, I guess this is also implicitly done with macOS, but New in Vetra, you can expose Rosetta 2 to your Linux VM. And the best example they gave you is reusing what Yannick has said with, uh, oh crap, why am I blinking on the Docker. name now? Thank you with Docker. So you would run your Docker file, you would compile your source code, you would end up with an x86-64 binaries that can run on a Linux Intel distribution. But now with Rosetta 2, you can emulate or you can run your Intel or x8464 binaries in this Linux VM running quote unquote in our mode with Rosetta 2. But That's to do wild. that it is wild and they show how to expose Rosetta from macOS as a shared directory and this one, like, it's not like all the other mouthful, uh, classes. Uh, it is a bit simpler if you go look at the link I'll put in the show notes where it links to the documentation. Because, uh, yes, you need to expose it as a shared, like a directory shared device. Like I mentioned that it is new in macOS Ventura for the virtual framework, but you need to expose it as the Linux Rosetta directory share. And then once that directory is exposed, you need to mount it in your uh, Linux distro and then run a couple of commands to say to the Linux distro, okay, when you run a binary that has the Intel headers in it, run it through Rosetta. So I don't want to speak that language uh, over a podcast. So go look <laughs> at the show notes. I'll have a link to uh, the Apple documentation for that. But I agree with you, the Rosetta support. I was a bit sad because I kind of wish they showed it running uh, yeah. in the, the session. But if we take their word that it works really nice. And with my experience with Rosetta 2 on macOS, if it works like, let's say, 75% as good on Linux than it does on macOS, this is pretty wild. This is going to be quite interesting. And I'm eager to see what developers, and especially tool developers, or developer tools developers, are going to do with this. Because, again, mention Docker, mention insert any uh, web backend developer here technology and tools like how it can use that and possibly improve the workflow and get the performance of Apple Silicon while still running Intel binaries in a VM is Although, interesting. <laughs> I, I would say that so much of the web development world is running on Macs these days that I think a lot of them are just making native Apple Silicon binaries anyway. Right, right. But in the end, you still deploy to uh, 
x86 server not necessarily uh arm servers are becoming more and more common but like i have an issue with the idea that you're going to be running your x86 64 code through rosetta in that case because you aren't really testing it on x86 64 then right if you're trying to replicate the production environment like you've just introduced a variable there that's not there in the production environment which kind of goes against that methodology but otherwise it's i mean it's cool i i like like that it's there (laughs) the only thing that they said is you can take the artifact from your ci circle pipelines or like they didn't say right. that deep, but you can say like you can take your like x eighty six sixty four binaries that you already run on a server, and then now run them locally on your Apple Silicon through Rosetta. So they they seem to mention that it's a way to possibly debug or run a more local environment. But again, that's what Docker is for and things like that. So so. Overall, this addition of Linux seems pretty interesting, and my own experience with the virtualization framework has been pretty rock solid. I literally ran their simple code to test some of our, uh, we call them bootstrap scripts. So literally, it takes, like, you install macOS, you take an M- you install Xcode, you tape an MT, you check out your Git project, and then it configures your Mac for our app your iOS app project. So to run a couple of things, to install a lot of a dependency, to install Brew, to install Ruby and things like that, uh, I was I had to do a couple of fix. But sometimes when you do the fix and it's already running your machine that is already configured, you don't know if it's running correctly on yeah. a clean installed machine. And getting that up and running, yes, downloading the restore image was pretty, not slow, but it's still in a console, like there's no nice UI on this, so it's pretty like nerdy and bare bones. But in an afternoon, I add multiple VMs up and running, one after the other. I had kept a, a SSD image file at the right state, right after the install, making sure that I clicked on everything just before I need it to run my script. So I would run my script. Oh, it will run into an issue. I would fix it trash the image, copy, and then rerun it again and did that for an afternoon and fix all the issues I needed without impacting my own Mac and my own development setup. And that was pretty wild. I was pretty happy by that. And literally, if today you need to have Mac OS up and running in a virtual environment, and and let's not kid ourselves, you don't want to pay for Parallels or you want to have it, or you don't want to wait for your IT department to pay for it. Like You, you can do that in a couple of hours and then boom, it's done. And so, sometimes it. it's not just a question of the money for the software, but it's also like one of the reasons I've not reinstalled VirtualBox on this machine is I know that it installs a bunch of shit like texts and stuff back in the day. Right. And now I don't know what they're doing. But No, it I, still does. Okay. It still does. I don't want any of that garbage on my machine. What if I update my machine and then everything locks up when you boot up the machine? Like, I don't want that shit on my machine. So having an option that uses uh, the virtualization framework is actually super attractive for me. The problem is I don't just want Linux on Intel. I would ideally also want Windows, in theory, uh, and other operating systems. Uh, But it's better than nothing, I guess. Yeah, they didn't mention a word about Windows, obviously, nor other distribution, I guess, BSD-based distribution, yeah. things like that. So right now, they're mainly talking about macOS and Linux. So that's maybe the other problem. 
Do you know if you can like install the beta on it? Like if you're well, Ooh. okay, I guess it's too early to tell, but like let's say next year they announce a new version of Mac OS and you are like, I want to try the beta, but I don't want to screw up my entire computer. I'm going to install it in a VM. Does that work? Or do you need to be at least on the same OS on both sides? They did not mention that. I at will be all. very curious to find that out next year then. At all. And in theory, they could have done that this year, knowing that the virtualization framework is already out. But it didn't support macOS. No, it did. Like, oh, 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 okay. Never it mind. did. No, I don't know how you got that. But like, again, the tests I ran like six months ago were on uh, Monterey, okay. right? So they, and it was for running Monterey. Uh, it's just that this year they introduced a couple of new things to make it more Mac-like, like the trackpad and things like that. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I don't know the answer to that, the answer to this question. But if there are any glimpse of it, could of the answer could be yes that would be amazing yeah so i hope i hope and uh, i could now use I'm that too <laughs> yeah me too uh now i'm curious i'll have to look possibly have some you're, you're you're making me work already yeah and that is it for session 10002 create mac os or linux virtual machines Okay, well, before you go off to work, I'm going to introduce some play here and talk about boosting performance with Metal FX upscaling in games. Ooh. This is session 10103. Uh, so Metal FX is a new framework that they released this year for platform-optimized graphics effects with high-performance upscaling. And the main reason I wanted to listen to this uh, session was pretty simple. Everyone's talking because uh, Resident Evil 8 and uh, No Man's Sky were the keynote. And everyone's talking about how Apple might be serious about gaming. And I I questioned that quite a bit. Um, and I just wanted to see, like, I, I watch Digital Foundry videos. I know how upscaling works. I I'm curious how Apple's upscaling compares to what's going on in the current generation consoles. So I thought, why not? It's a great idea. Uh, let's go watch this. And I always have a bunch of fun watching the metal sessions because half the time I don't understand shit and half the time <laughs> I do. Um, this one, I did understand most of it. So it wasn't a complete waste. Uh, Ooh, nice. So the, the idea, of course, is that uh, it costs a lot to uh, render at full resolution every single time. And if you could render the uh, reduce the render resolution, you could speed up your GPU time and you could actually save a lot of time by just rendering at lower resolutions and upscaling with smarter algorithms. And to a lot of the modern algorithms are really good and it's hard to tell the difference between native res and upscaled unless you look very, very close. Um, so MetalFX upscaling is basically an implementation of two different upscaling techniques that is optimized for Apple devices and easy to adopt in your uh, Metal applications. And the two types of upscaling that are supported are spatial upscaling and temporal anti-aliasing and upscaling, uh, which are two different techniques. Uh, if you're familiar with AMD graphics. Uh, AMD has something called FSR and FSR 2.0, which are their modern upscaling techniques. And these map basically one-to-one. -one. FSR 1.0, which was rated quite poorly, uh, is spatial upscaling. And FSR 2.0, which is the new hotness and is seeing rave reviews right now, uh, is temporal upscaling. Uh, and those are both of the techniques that are currently being implemented on the metal side. So I'll go through each of these, and then we'll go through some best practices at the end. So spatial upscaling 
It's the simplest one to implement. Basically, it just analyzes the information within a single frame to produce new samples by interpolating basically what value should be where within uh, the frame. It is super simple to integrate because it has literally no dependencies. Like you render a frame and then it takes that frame and it does everything by looking at that frame. It needs no, no external data. The way this works is that uh, there's a metal FX uh, plugin and you can just introduce it after the tone mapping step in your rendering pipeline. Um, and they showed a comparison shot of a scene that was rendered at 540p that they upscale to 1080p in this technique. Now, warning, uh, I don't know what the hell was going on with the developer app when I was watching this session, but the bitrate was absolutely atrocious. It made basically all of their demos look like complete garbage, which is a bad sign for a graphics session of all things. You said you had no trouble with it when you were testing, uh, and I mentioned this. I didn't watch your session. Oh, okay. I just... In general, I've seen that the the uh, mainly on the Mac, I've seen that that sometimes it wouldn't upscale to 1080p, and then you would get like just like a full screen like 360p image, and just like uh, going out and in and out of full screen wouldn't fix it. And the the solution I found was killing the app and restarting it would fix it. Okay. And then it would become like 1080p or even 4K. I think they do 4K sometimes. Uh, and it would look like the code The code is crisp. The slides are crisp. The images are crisp. The introduction is crisp too. So. Yeah. The problem with that I was having is not that the the video was in HD or that like still frames weren't perfectly sharp. It's anything involving motion was a complete fucking disaster. And this is a problem when you're trying to demo games which have a lot of motion. And uh, I don't know, because I was watching uh, a copy of the sessions that I had downloaded offline because my internet crashes all the time, so I'd like to be able to watch things without getting interrupted constantly. Maybe that had something to do with it, but like I know enough about video to know what the difference between low-resolution video and very low bitrate video is and it was very much in the bitrate camp of things uh so at the very least like if it looks like shit it's not it's probably just the session's bitrate's fault and it's not going to reflect poorly on metal fx um but anyway the the upscaled result uh did look a lot more detailed though one of the things that i noticed and that really bugs me about this kind of upscaling is that if you look at certain uh edges they are extremely hard edges like not that they're aliased but they have ringing artifacts on the side so like if you have like this black chess piece well and it's against like a sky colored background well there's going to be like a white outline white one pixel outline tracing the entire seam where those two uh colors meet and it looks really jarring and even at 1x scale uh, when it's not zoomed in, you can see that outline. And I find it very distracting to have those ringing artifacts. So I'm not super sold on spatial upscaling, uh, on their spatial upscaling in particular because of that. Uh, so the way you implement uh, spatial upscaling is super simple. Uh, if you're not familiar with Metal, which I assume most of you aren't, uh, the way it works is that uh, there are these things called command buffers, which are basically uh, a data structure in which you can define a pipeline that you use for your rendering. And uh, the way it works is there's something called a command encoder that is basically what emits 
the instructions for different kinds of effects that you're trying to do. So the way you should do it is you should have one command encoder that is responsible for the initial rendering and your pre-upscale effects. Then you can use a metal effects spatial scaler, which is essentially a single purpose command encoder that performs the upscaling. And then if you have any post-upscale effects, you can use another command encoder for that one. And uh, they all need to be like separate objects. Uh, another note is that spatial scalar objects are expensive to create, so you should only make them at app launch or replace them when the resolution is changed. So that's spatial upscaling. Uh, my personal impression is just that like, it's not a great option, but it's nice that it's there. Uh, temporal is where the hotness is, but it has more dependencies. So let's get into that. Temporal anti-aliasing and upscaling. Uh, first I need to demystify that because there's always anti-aliasing there and it's not clear why, but it'll make sense. Uh, so temporal anti-aliasing and upscaling uses temporal accumulation, which means you're going to have a lot of frames and you're going to combine data from most of these frames together to create a better frame. And uh, if you do this at the same resolution you render, that technique produces anti-aliased content automatically because it basically like, uh, it's essentially like it does uh, an average of the samples from the past few frames. I think it's like four frames or eight frames. Like the past four or eight frames are kind of average together but not quite it's like a smart average that is made based on the motion that happened in the frame and that means that if you do this on a frame that is exactly the same resolution as the thing you rendered you just naturally get anti-aliasing from that if you do it a larger size then you just get upscaling and anti-aliasing doing from that which is why it's called temporal anti-aliasing and upscaling uh, and the way sampling works with temporal accumulation is each frame introduces a jitter to color sampling at a subpixel level. What does this mean? Normally, when you're rendering graphics, uh, every pixel you need to sample a color for that from the uh, 3D scene you're rendering. And let's say by default, when you're not jittering your colors, you are getting the color from the middle of the pixel. So if at the subpixel level in the very middle of that pixel, the color is 25500 red, then that's the color that the pixel is going to be. What Jitter does is it says, okay, within that one pixel, I'm just going to move it. I'm just going to move it by a random interval up, down, left, right, every frame. And I'm going to accumulate these samples from different subpixels within that pixel. And then when we're going to average out those pixels later, I'm going to have a more accurate reading of what that pixel should be. And therefore it's going to be anti-alias better and it's going to be upscaled better. So that's how jittering works. And then, yeah, when you accumulate those different samples, then you can effectively super sample over time. So normally when you super sample, you render a res uh, an image at a much higher resolution than you're supposed to. And then when you scale it down, you average. It's basically the up opposite of upscaling, which is very strange, but that costs way more upfront. What you're doing with temporal upscaling is instead of paying an upfront cost to get that uh, super sampling effect, you are splitting it between like eight frames to get the same effect. Does that make any sense? It's it's kind of complex. It sounds pretty complex, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty complex, but basically 
what I'm saying is instead of doing a large upfront operation to get a super sampled image, you are essentially recreating that same process by splitting it across like, let's say eight frames. And then right. you're averaging those out and you're getting the same result uh, with less work per frame. Yeah, exactly. Interval. You do less work, but you do it more often. Yeah. So it, it's a neat technique and it works really well. So what are your requirements to implement temporal anti-aliasing and upscaling? Well, first of all, you need to enable jittered color sampling, which is what I said. That introduces an element of randomness into uh, where you get your uh, your color samples from. So you can get more accurate averaging out over your however many frames. You also need to provide a motion vector. Uh, basically, like how many objects have moved, uh, sorry, how much objects have moved uh, since the previous frame uh, because you need to be able to reverse m movement to actually be able to match up your samples to be able to average them correctly with the past frame. Uh, you need to send a depth map because uh, you need to know what's in the foreground, what's in the background, what has been obscured or has made, been made visible or hidden since the last frame. So you can smartly decide if you need to sample those objects or not. Um and of course, you need to provide previous frames. Uh, well, actually, you only need to provide one previous frame because it's temporal accumulation. Your previous frame contains the average of your past however many frames. So it just keeps getting better uh, each frame. Unlike with spatial scaling, uh, temporal anti-aliasing and upscaling should happen immediately after your initial render pass with jittered color and before your post-processing effects, which was not the case with spatial uh, and they show the same chess scene comparison they showed for the spatial scaling. And this time they did it at 1080p and 4K and the edges were much, much cleaner. I wish they had had the same resolutions in both because it's not clear if the ringing artifacts in the first demo were because it was starting at 540p or if it would be the same thing if they had started at 1080p. Um, but yeah, it's very nice. There are still some artifacts, uh, like there was the rim of one of the the chess pieces that was noticeably like stair-steppy. But aside from that, uh, the rest of the image was very, very clean. And you could tell it was upscaled, but it was noticeably higher detail than the 1080p image, which is ideally what you want. So best practices uh, for spatial upscaling, uh, your scene that you render should already be anti-aliased and noise-free before your upscale. The, the reason for this is that spatial upscaling is not inherently an anti-aliasing process like temporal anti-aliasing, so you don't want to do that. Um, your color values should be between 0 and 1 in the sRGB space or the perceptual color space. Uh, this seems obvious if you're like just someone who doesn't know how graphics rendering works, but uh, graphics rendering happens at crazy amounts of different color spaces, and sometimes you have a specific step at which you enter sRGB. So you want it to be already in the sRGB space when you enter uh, spatial upscaling. And the other thing which confused me for a while until I did a little bit more research, and this is the only thing I didn't really understand the entire session, is to set an appropriate MIP bias. So MIP mapping is this interesting uh, technique that exists uh, in 3D graphics where 
you've surely seen this in a 3d game before where like let's say you're looking at the ground and then like uh, a certain distance away from you the ground texture becomes noticeably lower quality because it's like so further away from you so they like disable they change the kind of filter that's running on the ground so it looks like blurrier right oh yeah been there done that especially in like open world games or like places with a lot of grass and then you have like nice foliage up front and then you have like ugly grass texture starting from like mid-screen uh you've probably seen that that's mip maps so mip bias is a configurable thing you can uh set up because if you have very high detail uh floor textures or just textures in general uh sometimes the scaling and the mip mapping can conflict with each other and uh produce additional artifacts like moray artifacts if there's too much detail and whatever so mip bias is just a way to configure like uh how much filtering is occurring on those textures to make it not produce those artifacts uh so for temporal anti-aliasing and upscaling ideally you want to pick a good jitter sequence so there are like actual predetermined sequences you don't necessarily want it to be completely random uh, you want your jitter sequence to be distributed evenly on a pixel so that when you average it out, it doesn't just give you like eight points taken one next to the other <laughs> because that would be bad. Uh, ideally, you want eight samples per post-scaling pixel. So they were saying if you're uh, doing 2x upscaling, you're going to want 32 samples. And they even recommended the Halton 2-3 sequence, which is 32 samples with a pretty even distribution that you can use. Uh, it's built into the framework. You can just use that. And here again, you want to set an appropriate MIP bias. For performance, uh, there's this thing in uh, when you're setting up a rendering pipeline in a metal called false dependencies. And the, the idea is if... Uh, the end step of one pipeline and the start step of another pipeline are using the same buffer. These become dependencies of each other, and that means that they can't run in parallel. And ideally, what you want is as soon as your frame one is off to the upscaler, you want to start working on frame two. But if you share buffers between those steps, it will absolutely force them to run one after the other. So avoid false dependencies so that uh, as much of your stuff can run in parallel as possible because the upscaler actually introduces another thing that will take longer if you have a false dependency uh, in your code. How to choose the correct type of scaling is the last thing I want to talk about. So the way they explained it was pretty straightforward you should always be aiming to use temporal because the results are much better but the problem is it has a lot more dependencies that you need to be able to provide for it to be viable so if you're porting a game let's say from like ps2 or something and you just want to dump that shit on the system and you don't necessarily want to go playing in the code in the c++ code and uh going to introduce stuff that can provide motion data and depth maps to um to the temporal anti-aliasing process like you don't have much of a choice but to go with spatial upscaling and it should only really be used as a fallback for the scenarios where you can't provide those dependencies uh because the there, if you could provide those dependencies, like the results are so, so much better that you really, really want temporal to make it look good. So that's it for the session. Um, I think it's a little bit like light on content. <laughs> it, 
it was like a 22 no it was a 20 minute session and i think like there was a lot of repetition in the in the session which made it such that it was not as dense as it seemed and it was still pretty interesting um the thing that really stands out to me with regards to the whole uh, narrative of Apple being a participant in the gaming world uh, with the Mac now is that their demos have not been particularly convincing. No Man's Sky ran at a terrible frame rate when they were doing the demo. Resident Evil was doing a little bit better. I think Apple internally seems to think that 30 FPS is a good uh, target frame rate for games, which is true if you're on a console maybe. But it's not true if you're comparing yourself to PCs, which is what the Mac is comparing itself to. And I think it looks really bad if they are very confident about their performance in gaming, but they're comparing themselves to 30 FPS. Like that, that's nobody can take that seriously. And uh, what's interesting is that with all of the talking about machine learning and machine learning and machine learning that Apple does. There's no machine learning upscaling in huh. Metal FX right now. Really? Yeah, because like everything that I mentioned, and this is kind of the complaint with AMD as well, spatial upscaling and temporal anti-aliasing are not machine learning aided techniques. They are just straightforward upscaling techniques. And NVIDIA is kicking everyone's ass right now with uh, DLSS, which is machine learning powered. And it is surprising to me that they didn't even have like a v1 machine learning upscaling algorithm in there and i really hope that they have something in the coming year or two because if they want to get serious about gaming they are going to have to have that very soon (laughs) it's going to become a problem very soon so yeah, i I think it's a good first step for uh upscaling techniques on all Apple platforms, but I don't think like Apple. Uh, yeah, Apple is still like on PS4 territory right now. Oh, okay, I see. that helps the image you're trying to yeah. depict here, huh? So it's playing the Nintendo game. I mean that that's kind of what everyone has always said about <laughs> about Apple in games. So I'm not completely surprised, but yeah, right, huh? So that's it for this session. Good. My second session is session 10,016. Get more mileage out of your app with CarPlay. Are you really surprised I wouldn't do any CarPlay session this year? (laughs) If you are, you don't know me. Um, The same way I'm not surprised Enik did in the middle session this year. Well, to be fair, in previous years, I wanted to do metal sessions, but I didn't understand them in time for the show. <laughs> True. But you did do a couple of uh, metal sessions. I don't uh, think in so. The past. I think we'll, we'll have to look at our back catalog yeah. of extravaganza, but I'm, it's not your first one. That I'm for sh- that I'm pretty sure. Really? Huh. Okay. So let's start CarPlay. We haven't talked CarPlay that much recently in general i think in in this podcast so i guess we're overdue quote unquote yeah but this year apple is introducing uh new app types and a new tool to help you build your carplay apps so we'll start with a quick reminder because again uh if i I think carplay apps are one of the rare let's put this with type of ios apps or apps extensions they're kind of weird they're kind of uh, in between uh but they do have a lot of uh, CarPlay specific things 
and the first thing is they require an entitlement, and this entitlement is specific to the type of CarPlay app you want to do. So you really need to reach out to Apple, talk about what the type of what type of app you're doing, and then they'll give you the entitlement or not. Um, quick reminder that the types of app you can make are as follows: you can make navigation, audio, communication, EV charging, parking, and quick food ordering apps. And new this year, uh, Apple has introduced fueling, which. I was like, why didn't you fueling like two years ago when they did uh, EV charging? But I guess now they're doing it. And driving tasks. Uh, so at that point, that's where the presenter kind of goes to another reminder is that CarPlay apps are template based, meaning that if you're, car- if you're aware of iOS apps, you control the views on screen and things like that. But no, not with CarPlay. You provide the data to the Apple framework and Apple draws the UIs for you because it has optimized the UI for being used once the main user is not focusing on their app, aka they are driving. And the main user of CarPlay is not the passengers, it is the driver. One thing I've put in the show notes is not all the UIs so the template UIs are available to all the types of apps. So there's a big chart shown during the presentation and also found in the documentation and the CarPlay app programming guide, which I'll include in notes, that tells you if you want to show a list of data, you need to make sure that the list of data template is available in the type, the app type you want to do. You cannot build your own mapping UI or a mapping view if you're not a navigation app type and things like that. So if you were to build a CarPlay app and you're unsure about which app type you need to choose, go through that list because the type of template exposed to you to show your data is pretty important. Coming back to the new app type. So in iOS 16, there is the new fueling app type, app type, excuse me, which is quite similar to the EV charging app type introduced in iOS 14. So the main idea is yes, allowing you to find location where to refuel your car. Uh, and this Apple mention is for more traditional, aka gas and diesel or more like, like different type of, uh, other fueling. For example, hydrogen can be considered here. And they want to remind developers that for those types of app, you need to provide to the user something more. Because generally speaking, people might already be using this feature from their navigation app, whether it's Apple Maps, whether it's Google Maps. Like, what can you provide extra that makes it compelling for a driver to install your EV charging app or now your fueling app. So they give example about maybe starting the pump or having actions you can do that will trigger the pump or something like that. And that your fueling app type is not just only for finding location because that's more only repetitive. Then the other new type is the driving task. And this one is weird and interesting because the goal of this app type is to have the primary user carpet, aka the driver, to perform a wide range of very simple tasks. 
And during the presentation, Apple gave a couple of pres- uh, of of example, like controlling car accessories. And the example app they had for this was a trailer controller, where you could like check the tire pressure of your trailer or change the brake sensibility of your trailer brakes and things like that. The other example they gave was driving a road status, which that one was weird to me. Because road status or driving status is something that is always pretty popular in navigation app. Because the example they shown was a list of road hazards around your location. I'm like, okay, like Waze does that. Apple Maps does that now. So <laughs> that sounds like the app I'm working on at work. <laughs> that's kind of boring. But it is one of one of the things they consider driving tasks. Uh, another one they were saying things you can perform before or after a drive. And this one was pretty interesting to me because the example they showed is a mileage logger. You can input, or the other one they showed is the uh, to set the number of passengers in your cars if you want to use the uh, carpooling lanes. So that once the transponder or your phone beams to the carpooling system, uh, it knows how many passengers there is in this car. But don't forget that when they say simple task, it it is literally means it's a task you can do in a matter of seconds, like two or three seconds, and that's it. And in, I'll say it in theory. Apple says those tasks should not be required to be done during the driving, but I'm sure some of them, the, the developers, will intend for that. But in theory, they're not tasks to be required. That requires the interaction of the driver while they drive. So again, uh, in the past few years, and I'm a, again, those new changes like the fueling one versus EV, I'm like, okay, do you really need to make it a different category just because it's using <laughs> a different fuel type? Uh, like, I think those two can be like, can become one category and just call it a day. Uh, but the driving task type, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting thinking involved, like the mileage logger or just like inputting your, uh, your gas mileage which is something i do on a spreadsheet myself is something that is possibly pretty interesting like i don't have to open uh my spreadsheet i can just like keep my phone plugged in open the app in carplay and then do the logging there would be pretty neat if uh when somebody builds an app for that because i'm sure once that scales out there's gonna be uh multiple apps but i guess i Always like I always wanted to kind of change my spreadsheet into an app, and seeing that now I could make even a CarPlay app, that's kind of uh, made me think uh, or made me reconsider a lot of my side projects. But I digress uh, for a sec. Uh, trick question: Are driving tasks predefined templates like the other ones, or do you get custom UI? No, no, they are predefined templates. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, they were like a lot of the example they shown were single screens apps. Yeah. So it was pretty, pretty limited. But if I show you, like I'll read some of the uh, type of templates you have access to. Uh, point of interest, information, tab bar, list, grid, alert, and action sheet are the ones you can have access for driving tasks. And a lot of their apps were either list or a grid because, uh, for example, the carpool lane app was a grid of three icons, your one passenger, 
your two passengers or your three plus passengers and you have to select which one you want. Wow, okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty limited. Uh, the other example about the trailer controller, it was a list con- giving you information and then at the bottom of it, you had two buttons, one to decrease the brake sensibility of the brake controller of the trailer and the one for increasing. Uh, so it's still pretty bare bones, but I wouldn't be surprised people will be creative for that. Like, like I, I know nothing about that, but when I used to go on the racetrack with my car, uh, though now I don't have a car to go to the racetrack that has CarPlay, but I use an, I used to use an iPhone app that was a lap timer. So I was like, hmm, now that is a driving task, like starting the timer and then stopping the timer when my session is done are driving tasks I do before and after driving. So I was uh, imagining a lot of things, but... I would be curious to see if it is a new interaction that the app developer that does build this lap timer could use to build uh, such of a CarPlay integration so you see your lap timer inside CarPlay while you're on the racetrack. Mm. I guess. I wonder if Apple will allow that type of apps on the CarPlay, quote-unquote, on uh, to get a CarPlay entitlement. But again... Uh, when it was described to me, I feel there was limit you could bend to have such types use this uh, template. So again, I'm eager to see what people will do because I think driving task is kind of the first more general category. It is the first general app type that could have its rule bent a bit depending of if you're able to negotiate with Apple or you have a friend at Apple that gives you the entitlement because the other ones like audio like it's if you're not a podcast app or a music app like you cannot get the audio entitlement are you a communication app like yes or no do you send text messages and things like that no navigation same thing and it's funny because if you go into the uh, CarPlay app programming guide it's literally separated this way. Audio, communication, navigation, and then all the other types into one column. So driving task, EV, fueling, parking, quick food ordering are apps that support the same templates. So Apple is giving them specific names, specific goals in life, let's put it this way. But to me, it's just like it's you either are an audio app, a communication app, a navigation app, or other related <laughs> car things. Yeah. But again, uh, I'm hopeful that it means that the more the more driving tasks they are, uh, even if now they have a driving task uh, type, the the more they're getting focused into what developer ask the more they expand this and their model become a bit flexible into what they allow to be in carplay because again the the main thinking about requiring carplay apps to to uh, the main thinking behind having carplay apps be behind entitlements is they want to know what you want to do with it because security of the driver which could be a bit some people might say it's apple uh, being apple and keeping it the power to itself but i think for carpal apps, this can be pretty justified. And it's really intriguing because it's not clear to me today if driving tasks are apps that you are more likely to get the entitlement for because it's like it has even less requirements in quotes than the other ones or if they're going to be extra careful about what they allow in driving tasks because it could potentially distract the driver more than the other kinds of apps. 
I wouldn't be surprised they would lean on the latter statement. Mm, yeah. That I, even if the name is a bit generic and I wish that they may bend the rule a bit to allow my lap, ta- lap timer <laughs> app that I really love, I don't think they'll be that loose and they'll be pretty strict about it's a driving task. Yeah. Like a mileage logger or those EV carpool lanes where you want to indicate state about something, for example. And that's mainly it about the new app types. Now let's jump into the second part, which is the new tool Apple has introduced to make CarPlay development way easier than it used to be. So before I Xcode 15, Xcode 14 and uh, macOS Ventura, there was mainly two ways to debug or to build your CarPlay apps. Since the introduction of CarPlay, the main one was you take your iPhone, you go to a car, and then you plug it in, and then you figure it out. And because CarPlay is wired up until a couple of years ago, it meant that you could not debug up until Apple allowed wireless debugging, so that could be useful. But Still, uh, wireless debugging, I think uh, it's pretty hit or miss sometimes. Sometimes it works magically. Sometimes it just never works. So uh, I heard from uh, car not directly from CarPlay uh, developers, but like through podcasts and things like that, that this integration with wireless uh, debugging is not ideal. So either you like plug in your car directly, your phone directly to your car, or you buy an aftermarket Ed unit that you could put on your desk, or at least you're next to your desk, so that would be a bit better. I think it was a year or two ago, Apple also added into the Xcode simulator a CarPlay window, so you can go into uh, the iPhone or uh, the iPhone simulator, and the same way you could expose an external display, and you could test that inside the simulator, now you can expose a CarPlay window. I think, again, I, I forgot if it was the last year or two years ago, but I know it's pretty recent. So that was the second way to test your CarPlay app. But again, it was through the simulator. So you add either, I use the simulator, which is not 100% real, but allows me to use the debugging tools correctly. Or I use the real experience with an app install on my phone through a third-party ad unit that I bought or through my own car that I need to go in my driveway and then plug into it. And Apple realized that that was mainly shitty. This year, they are introducing a new tool inside the additional tools from Xcode you can download on the dev portal, and it is called the CarPlay Simulator. And this is a Mac app that makes your Mac become a CarPlay host. You can connect your phone to your Mac like you already do for debugging purposes, and this new app triggers the CarPlay workflow in its own screen. And your phone is still connected to Xcode and also sees the CarPlay session from this application. And I'll talk about it a bit more, but you should really go watch this part of the session (laughs) because my jaw dropped, literally. Does it mean you can hook up your Mac? If it's a laptop you're using, you can hook it up to your car. No, because you don't need to. You can just, like, you don't need to hook your phone to a car anymore because your map becomes uh, the CarPlay OS. Sorry, I wasn't and, clear about what I meant. I meant, like, for the diagnostic port testing or whatever. 
Oh, oh, I guess you could also plug in your Mac through OBD2 to your car, but usually the OBD2 software doesn't really work on the, <laughs> any Windows space. Re- remember I bought a, lab, a Windows laptop for that. I know, but I mean, I assume that now since you can technically run a CarPlay thing on your on your Mac, in theory. Yeah, no, I, I see where you're getting, getting at, but nah, it's a bit stretched. Might but, as well just go into the car directly then, if you have the yeah. head unit. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, it means that you can stay at your desk, have a CarPlay environment up and running, and also simulate different environment, meaning that while the template-based-ness of CarPlay allows you to not really care about different screen sizes, different inputs, whether it's touchscreen, whether it's a, a wheel on the car or an input control on the car, like, you can test that with the app. Uh, for sure, for touch, like, you use the mouse cursor and things like that. Uh, they also have a small window or a small section of the window below CarPlay where they show physical controls as buttons on the Mac app that you can simulate. Oh, what happens if I press an old Siri button on my steering wheel, but there's a Siri button in the application. You can also like simulate when the car asks for dark mode or dark map and things like that. And on top of that, because I've never seen that in a car yet, you can use this app to test the recently introduced instrument cluster display integration that was released two years ago a year ago you can test that inside the app so it seems to be that carplay simulator is literally the tools that the carplay developers have been waiting for since the fucking introduction of carplay because this makes debugging carplay apps a breeze i haven't tried it but if it works just 50 percent of the time it will be way better than all the previous <laughs> workflows, for sure. And it's funny because Apple even suggests, okay, yes, CarPlay is template-based, but because you can change the screen size of that, you can We suggest that you fall, you test for the following screen resolution, like 800 by 480, 1280 by 720, like, and then the other one was 900 by 1200. Like, they give you things to simulate. Same thing when you want to test with the instrument cluster. They can, you can input, okay, the the instrument cluster integration is this wide, pixel wide, and this eye pixel wide, a pixel width. and also you can define the safe area, meaning that maybe the instrument cluster cluster defines a big region where you can draw the map, but you should not define you should not draw controls in specific regions because there's another gauge on top of it and things like that. So it is it seems to be pretty well thought out as a debug tool, as a like as a development tool for CarPlay developers. And that was, to me, uh, the biggest surprise for this presentation because, like, they were saying CarPlay Simulator. I was like, it already exists now in Xcode Simulator. And I, no, 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 that's not what I, they meant. The real they one. A, <laughs> a new one. And a real one. Yes, you're correct. And it's funny because they ended the presentation with two things. The first one was like, hey, we introduced a new CarPlay Simulator. And it allows the inter- it allows you to test for the instrument cluster display integration. Guess what? We're now allowing maps. We're allowing third-party maps app to draw their own map view, 
like you were allowed to do on the CarPlay dashboard screen, uh, like Apple Maps. So it, it is something I didn't, I didn't know that only in the previous OSs, only Apple Map could interact with the, uh, inter- instrument cluster display integration. But now it seems that if you support the same technology that was introduced in iOS 13 to allow your third party navigation map to draw its own map, images imagery onto the carplay dashboard it is pretty similar like it's a new ui application scene you just need to define a new scene type and say that you support both the dashboard and things like that uh, the dashboard and the instrument cluster scene you they also expose ways to say like okay in the in first event cluster i can decide to zoom in or zoom out so you can response to those events you can ignore those events and they have exposed ways to do that so again it seems to me that the best way to be to uh to benefit of carplay is to be a navigation app and it makes the most sense as a car integration uh so i kind of sometimes i kind of wish i worked for google just to work on their google carplay google maps integration i'm not leaving my work i don't want to work with google uh, <laughs> it's kind of like just just me imagining what it would be to be a carplay developer uh if you follow me just because it, carplay seems to be pretty neat and every time I, I read about it it seems to have evolved greatly in the past few years and while even if, if while even if it's and dev environment seems pretty limited on things you need to do. It seems to be a nice l- limit set of things you do. Like the, 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 the impact of it to be l- the impact of not being allowed to do everything is kind of creating, making me cre- quite creative when I think about CarPlay. So that, that last but not least, remember what I was saying? I never seen a car that does the instruments clusters display integration. <laughs> They concluded the session with a demo inside the BMW car, and I think <laughs> that you see the steering wheel with the BMW screen, the BMW logo. So it's pretty funny, and of course, I think in when they plug in their phone, it shows a BMW logo. But I think the car they shown by me recognizing the interior is the new iX. EV uh, SUV car but it was pretty funny that they showed all the apps that demoed on the Mac throughout the presentation inside a real car running into CarPlay plus uh, the new infotainment like the new third party maps integration into the infra into the instrument cluster display so it was kind of a a nice uh, cherry on top at the end of the presentation. So I guess now I've seen a third uh, a car manufacturer do that type of integration. And that concludes the CarPlay session. Seriously, the CarPlay simulator, I didn't have the time to install it, but for sure I'll install it on my Mac and just for pl- just to play with it. I'll plug in my phone, I'll play with it. Uh, I'm sure I'll lose so much time <laughs> playing with this app just to see and also to see what my car CarPlay integration doesn't do that I might be missing. Like I want to see Apple's map and instrument cluster integration to see like how it looks like, what does it show exactly and things like that. Or even if some of my third party apps that I have installed, what do they do when you have those two, three screens in your car that are integrated with CarPlay? Uh, just for my own curiosity. So I'm sure I'll keep you posted next time we talk about CarPlay, how much time I lost uh, just <laughs> playing that. But I'm sure I'll lose at least an afternoon. And that is it. Yannick, what's your second session? 
My second session is Adopt Desktop Class Editing Interactions, or session Ooh. 10071. That was a good one. I don't think we watched the same session, because the things you described were not in this session. <laughs> okay, I guess I didn't watch it. Let me look. There, you can start and I'll look. I think there are multiple desktop class on iPad sessions, okay. and I think we didn't watch the same one, um, which it disappointed me a little bit. This one is specifically focused on the edit menu and the find and replace functionality. Is that the one you watched? I think I watched this one. I'm I'm still searching in the uh, developer app, so okay. Start. Well, can continue. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the edit menu. Uh, the edit menu is completely uh, redone in iPadOS. Uh, it presents itself differently based on the input method. So there are kind of like three different presentation types. If you're on a touch screen, it looks very similar to. Uh, I was going to say UI call out of view, but that's not actually true. It's like the UI menu controller thing that they used to yes. have before. And I watched it, by the way. Uh, okay. I'm looking at the screenshot and I look at my watch status. I watched it. No, it's you pretty neat, yeah? We can discuss that after. You told me toolbar customization and I was so happy that it was going to be in there. And then I watched it and there was no toolbar customization and I was very sad. Yeah, I think I confused two other because I think there's a yeah. toolbar specific uh, presentation. Classic. Okay. Uh, yeah, so if you're on trackpad or mouse, it becomes a new style of contextual menu. And if you're on Mac Catalyst, uh, you get a traditional Mac contextual menu. It's actually interesting. Uh, I didn't watch very many UI kit sessions because I've been very busy in the past few weeks. But a lot of the UI kit sessions that I've seen have put a lot of thought and care into mentioning Mac Catalyst as much as possible, which is funny because no one uses it. Um, Ignoring a comment about nobody using, which is true though, but you're correct. Uh, I watch a lot more UI kit session and they do mention, A, if you do that in Mac Catalyst, here's how it's going to react or be shown on screen as. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting thing that this uh, edit menu has is that the menu itself has built-in data detector support. Uh, so, for example, if you select a measurement or a price in a text view somewhere, you get automatic unit and currency conversion suggestions in the edit menu. Uh, if you select an address, you get address-related actions in the menu, like adding them to your context or looking it up in maps. And all of this is done absolutely for free with no developer adoption required. You just select the type of text that uh, the edit menu recognizes as a type of data, and you will get actions related to that directly in the edit menu. Uh, you can also add custom menu options uh, with a new text view delegate call or a text field delegate call. Or if you implement the UI text input protocol, you can implement a method there uh, because UI menu controller is now deprecated. It's deprecated because it's being replaced with UI edit menu interaction, which allows for programmatic presentation of the edit menu or the presentation of a contextual menu on right click. Also on Mac Catalyst, uh, like I said, the iOS edit menu bridges to a standard contextual menu, but the programmatic presentation works only on iPad idiom, not on Mac idiom, which is strange. It's weird to see a Mac Catalyst because it has two idioms behave differently in those two uh, scenarios, but whatever. 
the new iOS edit menu is completely built on top of UI menu element APIs. So it's recommended by Apple to go learn about those in prior WWDC sessions if you want to learn more about customization. They specifically called out a session from WWDC 2019 and another one from last year's WWDC that you can watch. UI menu, uh, even though uh, UI menu controller is deprecated, UI menu itself has new APIs in iOS 16. There's a preferred element size uh, property that lets you group common actions into a more compact presentation, which is the closest thing in this session to toolbar customization, but it was not toolbar customization. I'm so sad. I'm sorry, Unique. I'm sorry. (laughs) There's also an attribute you can put on menu uh, items called uh, keeps menu presented, which lets you keep the menu open after an action is selected in the menu. So the example that they used uh, in their menu was an indent and outdent uh, functionality. So if you have a line selected, you can indent it multiple times and then outdent it multiple times without having to bring up the menu every time, which is definitely a pain in the ass if you try to do it now on iOS 15. Uh, the other piece of functionality that they are bringing to uh, to the iPad as part of this desktop class initiative is Find and Replace, which is a new UI component for finding and replacing text in your application's documents. Uh, this too behaves differently depending on the input method or the device that is being used. And when you're running on Mac Catalyst, it behaves exactly like the built-in AppKit Find and Replace panel and slides down your content. So you need to accommodate for that. It has built-in support for UI text views, WK web views, PDF views, and quick look. And if you have one of those views, you can just set the is find interaction enabled flag to true on these views and you will get find and replace for free. Once find and replace is enabled on the view and it becomes the first responder, you will find that standard find keyboard shortcuts like command F command G will work. Uh, the find menu options in the macOS menu bar will work and that you can programmatically invoke a find and replace session uh, via the findinteraction.presentfindnavigator method. On Mac Catalyst, uh, if you're doing this, for example, on a text view or whatever, uh, the scroll view insets on your view will automatically be adjusted. Uh, Trait collection changes are automatically going to be uh, responded to for the presentation of your uh, find and replace view. And as I said, make sure there's enough room in your UI to accommodate the sliding down find panel. Much like on the Mac traditionally, uh, there is a customizable set of find options. By default, it includes whole whole words, that's hard to say, and match case. Um, But you can also provide your own options via an options menu provider. This would allow you, for example, to add something like, hey, I want to add regular expression support to my search. Uh, Well, there's no support for that built into the find and replace framework, but you can provide an option and then handle it within your custom implementation of the search. And then use the new uh, Swift regex support. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, that's true. So what if we have a custom view, uh, which is not in the ones that have built-in support for this? Well, luckily for you, UI find interaction can be installed on any view, and it's especially easy if you already use UI text input in your views. It can also be adapted to existing find and replace implementations that you may have traditionally developed uh, before this feature was implemented. And all you need to do, well, this is like when cathode ray, du- ray dude says, just, it's just <laughs> register a UI find interaction delegate that handles UI find session objects. That shit's easy. Just do it. 
you can build subclasses of UI find session if you have an existing implementation you want to adapt. Otherwise, you can just implement the UI text searching protocol on the document class that's being displayed in your view. And one single find interaction can multiplex finds across multiple documents if relevant. What this means is if you have an application like Mail, where you have a conversation view that shows multiple messages one on top of each other, and the way they are modeled in your application is as separate documents, uh, you can have multiple documents, each with their own uh, UI text searching protocol implementation. And then your find interaction can say, hey, I am launching a search on multiple documents, and it will just work and do the right thing. So that is literally everything they said in the desktop class editing interactions session. Uh, here again, it's a lot of time, 22 minute session to not say very much. Uh, it's also just two things. And like, I did not think these were the most interesting desktop class things that they could have talked about, including like, you know, customizable toolbars. That's a bigger deal. I, I've always been extremely horny for customizable toolbars. So uh, even in the old days of the Mac, Mac OS, I would just like, every time I would launch a new app, I would go into customize toolbar and just have fun fucking up all of the toolbars and uh, adding all my favorite stuff. Uh, so it was, it made me very sad that until now uh, it hadn't been available to uh, ios at all and in fact like the only app that had this was the original ipod app on the iphone you could customize the tab bar technically at the bottom it was the only app with customizable ui in all of ios until now and it kind of drove me crazy that they actually got rid of that when they made the music app so it's nice to see that kind of functionality come back on the ipad i was honestly thinking that maybe they were going to talk about my buddy, the Swift UI table view that I've been asking for all this time on iOS and this, but apparently it's not desktop class enough. What the fuck do you want? I'm surprised. Isn't there a session about it? There might be, but it's not this one. I'm surprised after watching this one that you didn't switch to one of those. Because if I search quickly, if I do table... um, It might be grid or something. Right. But there is a couple of Swift UI on iPad session this year and they add like add toolbars, titles and more. And then there's another one that optimize your interface. So possibly I haven't had the time to go through and watch all of them. Um like it's interesting because a lot of the stuff that has been introduced uh, both on the Swift UI side and on the UI kit side are making me reconsider certain things about what I was planning for Cezura on iOS. And it's looking more and more likely that that is going to wait until the fall just so that I have more toys to play with uh, when working on that version of the app. Nice. But yeah, for for now, I'm just chilling and uh, I'm going to watch a couple of these sessions to uh, have more information to make choices with them. Uh, but yeah, this session, it, I mean, it was fine if you knew what you were getting into. I did not, and that's why I'm disappointed. Um, but there you go. Good. I hope you have enjoyed those sessions off the beaten path. I think Yannick's last session is the closest to that. It's pretty mainstream, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, But usually we try to stay off the beaten path. So uh, as usual, I'll, I know I like to repeat that in this uh, extravagant episode, but yeah, if you're an iOS developer and you always like, I do that, so don't get me wrong, you can also do it. 
Yes, you favorite. What's new in Swift? What's new in Swift UI? What's new in UI kit? That's okay. But take the time and favorite or bookmark a few sessions. I was like, I'm not sure if I really need to know about this, but you know what? I'll take a couple, like I'll take a 20 minutes here and there to watch maybe two, three sessions that you're not sure if you'll really, really use them in your day-to-day career as an iOS or an iPad OS developer or even a watchOS developer. I don't know, but take that, take that as an opportunity to learn something new about the tech that you might not care, but you want to be curious about. And I hope that we've inspired you yet again after six years doing that with WWDC 2022. And that is it for this episode. All right. You can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 187, or you can find our full back catalog at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the podcast on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast that's l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast or you can find us individually on twitter i am at Sakarina, and ducolivier is at luconoche that's l-u-c-c-o-n-o-u-c-h and we'll see you in two weeks we'll see you in two weeks for our last episode before the hiatus with a secret topic Ooh.